Shana Tova. <clears throat> Growing up in Madison, Wisconsin, we had to walk past the university football stadium to get to synagogue. Every Saturday morning during the season, we would walk past hordes of people parking cars on lawns, dressed in red and white, grilling brats and drinking beer at nine in the morning. After years of walking to shul, With the tailgaters, I started to suspect that there were some similarities in our two religions. My suspicions were confirmed the first time that I watched a football game with my in-laws. My wife is from, hi, there you are. My wife is from Baltimore, and their fandom for the Ravens is, oh, sorry, okay, come on, is, is clearly a kind of religious observance. Like religious observances, they have set holy days and should their team make the playoffs high holy days as well. They have their special foods that they eat, they wear special clothes and gather with loved ones in observance of the games. They have also developed over the years a complex ritual system for these holy occasions. My in-laws have a required seating chart for whomever might be at the house to watch the game. Certain people have to sit in certain chairs, Shlomo in the armchair next to my father-in-law if they're winning and on the couch if they're losing, etc. My mother-in-law and her friend once had to spend an entire game standing on the stairs outside of the basement just to ensure a playoff win. And all of this happens miles away from the players who carry on thinking that it's their talent, their years of practice, their drive and athleticism that will make them win the game. They don't realize all of that is meaningless if Shlomo isn't sitting in the right chair. <laughs> now these are fan rituals. And fan rituals might seem crazy because the fans clearly cannot affect the game. But players have superstitions as well. When I played basketball in college, we had a number of rituals that were essential to winning the game. As we left the locker room, everyone had to jump and hit the Oberlin College sign that hung above the door. We had to begin our warm-ups in the exact same way. We had to line up in a specific order. The deviation from any of these rituals would have catastrophic results on the team's ability to win the game. If you forgot to jump and touch the sign, we might as well not bother playing because our defeat was assured. This was Oberlin College, so our defeat was pretty much assured whether we touched the sign or not. But... Now these rituals seem ridiculous. In fact, they are ridiculous, but they have their reasons. In his book, The Sociology of Sports, Tim Delaney discusses some of the causes for these rituals in sports. He says that they develop for a number of reasons, one of which is to help the player focus their attention on the task at hand. It can be used by the player to prevent anxiety or shut out excessive environmental stimulation. Rituals can also help us cope with high-risk, high-stress situations. 
especially things that might be out of our control, players and fans alike realize that despite their years of preparation, there is an X factor in sporting events that is outside of our control. The ball might spin a weird way, the ice might be rough in a certain patch, or it could be fourth and 26 and McNabb finds an inexplicably open Freddie Mitchell while the Packers defense crumbles. Thank you for the seven chuckles. I'm still a little bitter about that game. Improbable things can happen. And these rituals help people focus on the task at hand and impose order so that they feel like we have some agency over the uncontrollable. Rosh Hashanah, today is a day when we are all made to recognize that we do not have control over everything that happens in our lives. Like the players on the field, it might not matter how hard we've trained ourselves or how hard we try, there are things beyond our control that can drastically affect our lives. We are like clay in the hands of the potter today. By design, we're made to feel our own powerlessness on a day when the stakes are as high as they possibly can get. Who will live and who will die? Who by fire and who by sword? Our fate for the next year, our very lives are being decided during these days of awe. The rabbis want us to believe in a God that is ultimately controlling and judging everything. And even if we don't believe in that kind of Lord, we can all acknowledge that there are dangers in this life that are beyond our control. On Rosh Hashanah, the book of life is opened and the verdict is written. And on Yom Kippur, the verdict is sealed and the book is closed. Our tradition teaches us that we have 10 days 10 days in the middle to repent our wrongdoings, to try to make amends, to promise to be better, to get our name in the good book. This is an important and scary time. Because no matter how good we are, we're never sure. We cannot know for certain what the next year has in store for us. Like us, the rabbis are so unnerved by the uncertainty of existence that they look for special signs to foretell the future. Rabbi Ami, one of our sages in the Talmud said that someone who wants to know if they'll live or die in the coming year should light a candle on Rosh Hashanah, and if it stays lit throughout the 10 days until Yom Kippur, the person knows that they will live for another year. Yes, your confused looks are correct. This is odd. But remember how important Shlomo sitting in his chair was? We too have bizarre omens in our lives for times when we... <clears throat> are scared about the future. Rabbi Ami knows that we're scared and uncertain, especially in Rosh Hashanah, and that people might want to skip to the end and know, will I make it? Did I do enough? Just light this candle, he says, and you'll know whether you live or die. Now the rest of the rabbis say that lighting this candle is a bad idea. Not because they say it won't work. No one says candles can't tell the future. The rabbis just don't think it's a good idea because they're worried that if you know if you're going to live or die in the next year, that you might relax. You might not perform the good deeds or do the tshuva, and so you won't actually get sealed in the good book after all. And a later rabbi in the same Talmud said, named Abaye takes the candle lighting ritual a step further. He thinks, well, if we believe that this magical candle thing actually works, let's make the magic work for us. He says, since you say these omens have power, let a person make a habit on Rosh Hashanah of eating 
pumpkin, fenugreek, leeks, beets, and dates. We will get to the pumpkins and the fenugreek in a minute. But first, let's look at what Abaye did. He's saying that if it is in fact true that our ritual actions have some sort of connection to God and God's plan, that if the candle does have power to predict the future, why limit ourselves to passively foretelling the future? Why not actively try to change that future by eating these special foods which are good? Then you can force God to do good things for us. This is another reaction to the same lack of control that is felt by Rabbi Ami, though it is perhaps a more proactive approach. Do something that has positive symbolic significance, and as a result, will force positive outcomes for you. The idea that I could have direct control over my fate is enticing. It's easier, too. It's easier to use omens and magic. You don't have to work so hard to be a good person. You don't have to exercise to be healthy. You don't have to apologize to make amends. Just eat this pumpkin, and it will force God to take care of the rest. Who wouldn't want that kind of control? The rabbis seem to have liked Abai's suggestion of eating these special foods, and they took on the practice. And we do it today. It's called the simanim, the signs. There's a tradition that on Erev Rosh Hashanah, Jews should have a Rosh Hashanah Seder, in which they eat these new fruits and foods with symbolic significance, like beets and dates and leeks and the head of a fish. Why the head of a fish? So that you're like the head and not the tail. That's right. Obviously. Not everyone today does this special Seder. I certainly didn't grow up with it, but almost all of us know the most widespread derivation of the custom, eating apples and honey. The apples are sweet, you want your year to be sweet, so you eat the apples. It seems like the custom of the Simanim is a perfect pre-game ritual for Jews on Rosh Hashanah. Abaye took the ritual a step further from passive to active because he's trying to empower us in our rituals. Lighting a candle to know the outcome is a fan ritual. When the game starts, I light a candle in my living room to see if my team will win. Pre-game meals are player rituals to focus them before a game. Abaye is asking us not to be spectators lighting candles to see which way the wind will blow, but players focusing our attention for our roles in prayer, reflection, and repentance that must be done on Rosh Hashanah. We need these rituals to help us focus and to help us feel like we have control in an ultimately uncertain and scary situation. Great, that's all well and good. But why did Abaye need to specify these foods? What's so special about pumpkins and leeks, and what is fenugreek? I'm not the first person to ask this question or to offer an answer. The, late, the medieval commentary Rashi tells us that these fruits were chosen because of their specific physical properties. They are plentiful, they grow quickly, and just as we want to grow quickly and multiply, we eat fruit with those properties to make ourselves like the food, sort of a rabbinic, you are what you eat. This process is physical, and the ritual is physical. There are properties of the food that I want to have, so I eat the food in order to get them. But later commentaries say that what's actually important is the psychological effect of the ritual. When Rabbi Yosef Karo talks about this custom in his law called the Shulchan Aruch, he describes not only that one should eat these foods, but also adds a small blessing to the ritual. When a person eats the pumpkin, they should say, May it be your will that our merits multiply. 
This is a pun on the name for pumpkin in Aramaic, rubaya, which sounds like the word yerbu, which means be fruitful or increase in Hebrew. The equivalent English pun would be if we were to eat a hundred grand candy bar on Rosh Hashanah to ensure a year of financial success. Or in my wife's house on Rosh Hashanah, they eat celery with raisins on it and wish one another a raise in your salary. I apologize every time I've mocked your dad. Apparently, it's a really funny joke. The Mishnah Bura, a late 19th century commentary on Karo's Shulchan Aruch, changes the game entirely. He says it doesn't matter what the food is, as long as the name has the pun of many in whatever language you speak. German and Polish Jews change the food to carrots, because the word for carrot in Yiddish, mirala, is the same as the German word for a lot. The Mishnah Burah is playing with the ritual, adapting it to make it more meaningful for a thousand years. The food had to be a pumpkin. That's what Abai said in the Talmud. That's what we're going to eat. But these guys come along and they said, a pumpkin? That's weird and meaningless to me. So they adapted the ritual to get the same point across. Because we are players in the game, after all, and not spectators. It's okay to change things a bit so that meaning of rituals can be translated to us just as it was to the ritual's originators. It might not matter if the ritual looks exactly the same as long as the meaning to us remains the same. So when it comes to our custom, there seem to be two different ways of looking at what's happening. One view, according to Rashi and others, is that there is something physical, almost magical happening here. When we eat the foods at this auspicious time, we are actually taking the physical properties of the food into our bodies, taking on their characteristics. The other view, and the one that we see most of our later commentaries use, is that these effects, the effects of this ritual is psychological and not physical. When we eat the fruit, the important thing is the pun on the name that brings to mind something good. This dichotomy is even borne out in the two sources for this custom. The story of Abaya and the fruit and eating the fruit appears in two places in the Talmud, which are identical, except that in one, the telling of the practice is written that Abaya says you must eat the special fruits on Rosh Hashanah, while in the other, it is only that you have to see these special fruits. Even in the Talmudic times, our rabbis were uncertain as to what the main power behind this mitzvah was. Is it physical? Do we have to eat it? Or is it psychological? We merely must see for the ritual to work. The same question should be asked by all of us about all of our religious practices and customs. Why are we here today in a room with all these other Jews participating in a group activity called Rosh Hashanah? It may be because we think that our actions and prayers are physically changing our lives and the universe and the Jewish people. There is a perfectly valid view in, the in our tradition, the echoes of which we saw in our story from the Talmud, that our actions, especially the mitzvot we perform, change the fundamental chemistry of the world. When you say the Shema, the world is not the same as it was before you said it. That's how powerful our rituals are. According to this view, the benefit of Rosh Hashanah is that it is a time when we are uniquely close to God and our prayers uniquely powerful. 
opposite reading is equally valid. Perhaps for some of us here, we're here because what goes on in the synagogue does something for us psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. Perhaps like the puns about the fruit, we gather together speaking these ancient and modern prayers aloud because it helps us remember something that we want to change for this year. Standing here in prayer and reflection or even piously zoning out can itself be the moment we need to reimagine what our life can be like and find the drive to get there. Humans are creatures of habit and we get ourselves into routines. Some are healthy, some are not. Daily rituals can help us get into healthy routines that may indeed be the purpose of many of the rituals of Jewish daily life. Yearly rituals, and especially Rosh Hashanah, are meant to break us out of our psychological routines. The weirdness or the holiness of this day is meant to get us unstuck so that we can think critically about ourselves and plan to do better in the coming year. The Meiri, another medieval philosopher, and I promise the last guy I'm quoting, is worried that eating these foods looks like some sort of sorcery, which of course would be forbidden. He says not to worry. There isn't a magical cure, but the symbols are meant to rouse us to good action. Of the ritual of eating the special food, he says everyone should know that these are only signifiers because nothing actually comes from simply speaking words, but only from repentance and good deeds. Nothing comes from speaking words only. The Me'iri could not be clearer. This is not sorcery. There is no magical shortcut through the pain and hard work of true repentance. The properties of the food, the substance of the ritual is important. So too are the words that we say about the food, the unique meanings we put behind the ritual. But eating the food and making the pun are not enough. The ritual is meant to physically change the universe. It is also meant to change us psychologically. Both are accomplished because the main goal the true goal of this ritual, of any ritual, is to get us to act. The question that we must ask ourselves on Rosh Hashanah is what action do we need to be roused to this year? The rabbis meant for Rosh Hashanah to be an ominous time, not because there's a special magical relationship between souls and candles, but because it is a day that breaks us from our routines. It's a place physically conducive to reflection and new beginnings. The rituals of Rosh Hashanah are meant to tr transport us from profane to sacred, from small focus to wide-angle lens. Yesterday, I asked us to think long-term, hundreds of years from now. Today, as we sit here, the task is to find something, something small, something in the liturgy and the rituals of our day, of our people, something that will keep us for the year and be our omen our physical or psychological reminder of what we want to be and to become, what we want our world to be and to become in the next year. We owe it to ourselves to use these rituals, to use this religion to rouse us to good action because as the Me'iri reminds us, nothing comes from simply speaking words. The point of all of this, whether it's what we did today, what we're going to do tomorrow, Yom Kippur, this entire religion, the point of it is Give us a routine and a way to bring ourselves to right and good action. And so we owe it to ourselves to think about what actions we want in the year to come and to think about what routines we can set to get us there. Hopefully they come from this tradition, but maybe they don't. Whatever it is, 
whatever it is, we owe it to ourselves to find a way to remind us to be the person that we want to be. How will you change the universe, and how will you change yourself? Na tovah.